Accomplishment Coaching is proud to present the following fine programming. Accomplishment Coaching, where coaches lead and leaders coach. AccomplishmentCoaching.com. Welcome to The Coaching Show with your host, Master Certified Coach, Christopher McCollum. Well, thank you and welcome to another edition of The Coaching Show. My name is Christopher McAuliffe, MCC, because you have to say it that way when you have the MCC. Here, here with me from, from afar is, is it Spike Terranova? Uh, Alex Terranova. Alex uh, is a PCC in his fifth year of coaching. Alex, what do you want the people to know about you? You don't have to say PCC. This is, uh, you know, this, that's for the, the older generation. You know, that's young I'm right here. I can hear you. <laughs> uh, it's great to be here with you, Christopher. Um, it's uh, how long have we been doing this for now? Six months, a year? You're on mute. Look at that. You can't all these years. And <laughs> God. People would say it was too long, but it's been, first, yeah, it's first, been time on a year. A, first time on a computer. <laughs> wow this is going very well for me already uh the the dulcet tones you heard of alex are available uh anytime you go to the dreammason.com or the dream mason podcast uh you are also an author you've written fictional authenticity or at least you say you've written it i don't know how authentic that is uh <laughs> it's a book that's available wherever fine books are available you've also got a new podcast product called flip the lens what's that all about Flip the Lens is me, a former client and a former podcast guest who we combined to create a podcast. It's basically all about authenticity. It's all about seeing things through different perspectives. Uh, it's usually the three of us, but what we do is we bring in other people of different races, genders, religions, backgrounds when one of us can't be there. So we get even more um, perspectives, different perspectives. Thank you. And um, it's fun. It's a, like a, almost like a morning show, little round table. And so we bring up topics and uh, kind of hammer them out. And I think I told you last time, we're trying to be harder on ourselves. We're trying to make each other mad and push each other's buttons. It's challenging. So that sounds like, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a wonderful That's like podcast. What we're doing. Flip the lid. Yeah. Right <laughs> Thanks. Uh, all right. Uh, so Alex is, as, as always, sort of a co-host for me. And I'm delighted to welcome back, uh, to welcome a, a new guest and to welcome back an extraordinary guest. Recently, uh, sorry, do we need to announce anything? Let's see. Most of the conferences are behind us now, but I think that um, I think that the ICF Heartland Conference in North America is going forward virtually, as is the ICF Midwest Regional Conference going forward virtually. Both of those, um, both of those coming up. Forgive me for not having the dates in front of me, but you can find them by going to the WWs and and asking a question. Christopher, what, going what's going on this morning? Did you forget your medicine? What's happening? <laughs> <laughs> I may have actually finally <laughs> taken my medicine. We don't want to go there. <laughs> That's right. Sukari is dealing with something. Don't don't oh, ask. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's a long ago remnant of a of a wonderful trip she took. A wonderful trip. That is the voice of Sukari Pina Fitz. Is that correct? That is correct. Ding. Um, Sukari's uh, back with us, and uh, we're sort of delighted. We're not sort of delighted. Man, you should do this, Alex. Something is terribly wrong with I know, me today. No, let's, let's keep going. This is good. People, you know, I'll, I'll, I should say this for people. So I've known Christopher now for six years, and Christopher, I was fortunate enough to be trained by him, 
And my favorite moments with Christopher are his human moments where he isn't perfect, where he isn't the MCC, because it's a beautiful reminder for all of us coming up in the world that, hey, we get to be human too, that we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to do it right all the time and we can still be successful. So thanks for being real right now, Christopher. We're editing none of this out. <laughs> That's totally, thank you. That's exactly why I'm doing it. <laughs> So sorry. Sukari, you deserve so much of a better introduction than I've given you. I'm delighted to welcome you back. You've just, uh, you along with Amber have just uh, provided a much needed um, session at the ACTO conference this year, as well as continuing to, to provide leadership in coaching and in all sorts of sectors for uh, over 18 years now. What would you like people to know about you? Well, um, I think what I'd like people to know about me is that this work that Amber and I kind of stumbled across but has become uh, a passion, uh, I believe is going to change the way the coaching profession uh, evolves. Uh, just as Alex gave a wonderful segue to our topic, we believe our work is about coaches especially MCCs, unlearning uh, uh, some of what, you know, coaching training has been teaching for a long time. Our work's about unlearning some of that so that we can relearn some new skills that I think will make our profession more robust. So to know about me is that uh, I believe this work is, is going to change the way um, our field does itself. Beautiful. Thank you so much. And thanks for being so articulate about it. Amber, the, the heretofore referenced Amber is Amber Mays. And uh, you have, among your many other uh, qualifications and extraordinary accomplishments, you have developed a global lead leadership coaching and organization consulting practice that integrates issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. What would you like us to know about you, Amber Mays? Oh, goodness. Uh, so much of what Sukari shared is uh, resonant for me as well. I, my background, I started with an organization development uh, degree and background uh, and a specialty in diversity, equity, inclusion, and then went into coaching. So uh, for me, the diversity, equity, and inclusion piece is kind of in my bones. Um, early on in my life, being multiracial. Uh, my mom was from Greece originally, came here when she was 19, and my dad is African-American from uh, Albany, Georgia. I kind of grew up in a you know mixed-race environment and was navigating issues of diversity around race very early on. So, But, but the food, Amber, the food had to be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you've never had uh, moussaka and collard greens, uh, I had... <laughs> I'm so sorry to interrupt, please. Oh, no, please. Um, it's a major part of culture. Um, so uh, so that's that's something that, uh, you know, was, I was born and raised with. And for me, diversity, equity, and inclusion is so much more. Uh, it is about race, and it is about so many more uh, aspects of difference and power dynamics that we're navigating that we, we may or may not be paying attention to day to day, um, depending on where we fall on the power lines. We'll say more about that. Uh, and so for me, when, when I go into coaching relationships, it's, uh, it's very apparent to me uh, the many differences that I bring and that my coachees bring 
uh, and how that plays out in our relationship and, uh, you know, supports clients in getting the best out of the coaching experience. So something that's just naturally fig figural for me that uh, when Sukari and I came together, we realized was not pervasive in the coaching field in general. So thus, you know, came our, our uh, model and, uh, and writing on the work. Would, I'm, I'm curious about how the partnership was formed. Like, how did you two, why each other, you know, why now? Like, what, what is it, what, what magic happened that sparked this partnership at this time? Well, Amber is magical. <laughs> Haven't you picked up on that yet? Um, so Amber and I are colleagues in uh, the NTL Institute for Applied Behavioral Science. And so that's where we met. And we are also out of the same um, OD Masters program, which is the uh, American University NTL Masters you know, organization development. And so we had a lot in common um, already and, and, and we knew each other. We'd done some, uh, we, we, we spent a year in a, a women's group uh, together uh, and got to know each other a little bit more uh, that way. Uh, and, and, and just realized that we had a lot in common, that our work was similar. And uh, so we would talk, uh, frequently, you know, not like every day, but frequently enough. And we were just in a conversation one day about experiences we were having with coaching clients. And it, 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 it's like we could finish each other's sentences in terms of what evolved in the conversation. So I'm going to hand it off to you, Amber, and let you finish the story. Uh, well, I mean... Thank you for calling me magical. That's, that's you lovely. Are. <laughs> um, I, if you spend any time with Sukari and, uh, you know, both of us together, we just love each other. So you'll, you'll see that uh, we just have kind of a natural kindred spirit connection. Uh, but yeah, I would, I would agree. I mean, I think also at a, a specific point in time when we started talking about this work, uh, it was, you know, when the media was covering things like Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement and so many other, uh, you know, aspects of marginalized identity uh, becoming more figural in media, we should say, uh, and a lot of the injustices that were being covered that weren't previously. So a lot of our coaching clients were coming to us talking about these issues and and really naming the fact that they didn't feel comfortable going into work, you know, and, and even, uh, you know, speaking what their experience was. And, and we had some conversations with people who said they didn't feel comfortable in their coaching relationships, really talking to their, uh, their coaches about these issues, uh, that their coaches didn't have the, the knowledge, the understanding, they, they may be walking on eggshells around it. Uh, but for whatever reason, they didn't feel like they had a safe space to to really explore what was happening for them. So that was a you know that was a springboard into uh, to our work. Well, speaking as a white cisgendered heterosexual man of a certain age, meaning above fifty five, uh, you know I'm the natural enemy to almost almost everyone walking the planet uh, these days, and the What's so, you know, fortunately in my heart, I have uh, a good old fashioned vintage 
<laughs> museum quality uh, tax and spend liberal Democrat. Do you know what I mean? So hopefully that I that uh, counteracts some of the things. But one of the one of the things I was talking with someone yesterday about. I, I feel like what we need, especially uh, people of my generation and gender and race, need is sort of a, a, like levels. You remember when I was teaching my kids how to read, they would have books that were at levels, right? This is level one, this is level two, this is level. I think we need this for racial education, racism education or inclusion and belonging education because so many of us, right? Like there's a pre-K, there needs to be some sort of a pre-K why you should care about other people that I can send to my relatives in the Midwest. And then, um, sorry about people, sorry about that people in the Midwest, but you know what I mean? And, and then like so many of the different programs that are available, whether we're talking about programs for coaches or not, are maybe at level one. And then you sort of take another one and you think, well, maybe I know everything there is to know. And then somebody hits you with performative allyship and you're like, oh, I think that's level three and I'm not there yet. And I didn't know what I was should have been not doing. Do you know? So um, I, with a mind towards that sort of idea that there are things to learn before you learn other things. I wonder if you could address why identity is important. Um, it's a conversation that I've had with some of my older friends, older white, cisgendered, heterosexual male friends, uh, you know, and there's some notion that it, it functions to divide. Can you speak to why it's so important to, I, to share identity as part of either introductions or when we're doing work with people? Car, you want to take that one? Well, um, sure, I can. I can start. And uh, so, every lived experience we have from the moment we come into this world uh, is informed by our respective identities. They get clearer to us as we age, and then some of them have just been with us since birth. So. As I think about myself as a human being, I think of myself with all of these identities uh, embedded into me and who I am. And as a result, based on my varied identities, and so, you know, we all have different identities. Some are more important to us than others based on where we are in the world, but I see myself through a lens that I recognize as being kind of holding all of these identities at the same time. So my experiences as a cisgender black, uh, cisgender woman with, in the, who identifies as being part of the black diaspora is going to be very different than yours, Chris. Um, so if we try to ignore that, if, if we just say, well, you know, we're all human beings, it really does strip from me the way in which I see myself and the way in which the society I live in sees me. This isn't just about how I hold Sukari to be. It is also how society holds Sukari to be. Uh, Amber? Yeah, I, and I, I'll, I'll add on uh, to that. Um, I think it's beautifully stated around uh, how we show up, how the world sees us, and how we see ourselves. 
when we layer on societal power dynamics, if we are in a group that is that is on the side of power, you know, less power, uh, where we are constantly being asked to assimilate, to adapt, to change, to to survive in the system, basically, to you know, basic survival needs um, at the deepest level, then we're much more conscious of the identity right around around those places where we have less power because we're constantly being asked to uh, to live in a system that doesn't allow us to fully be ourselves, right? So I think it's, you know, I, I appreciate, Chris, that you named uh, a lot of your, what we'd call dominant group identities, the, the group identities where you do have power uh, in, in at least U.S. society. Uh, because what happens when you're in those, uh, when you have those identities and multiple ones is that you become relatively uh, unconscious, right, to how those identities shape you and your experiences in the world, because you just don't have to think about it, right? This is what we what we name when we say privilege, right? It's it's a lack of disadvantage. So, you know, very important in the coaching relationship to be able to bring this lens of identity, especially when we are coaching across dominant and marginalized groups, right? How do we as coaches when, you know, we're in a dominant group and it's not something we even think about, let's just even take something like, you know, physical and mental ability, right? Uh, how do I as a coach who, you know, does not, is not living with any disabilities, think about what it's like for a coachee that has, you know, one or more disabilities? Am I paying attention to that? Is that on my radar screen? Probably not, right? Unless I'm, I'm really doing some active work to, uh, you know, address my biases and understand those, which by the way, to your point is level one in my, in, in my uh, estimation around this work, right? Really, really understanding that we have biases as humans and what we need to do about it and raising our awareness as to the ones that we have. I'm curious how, like, what's a good starting point for coaches that are hearing this going, oh, I wonder if I'm creating a safe space or not. Like, how, I've never even thought about this before. How do I know? Is there, are there, besides the questions to ask themselves, are there questions that they can ask their clients that maybe they haven't asked before to kind of open that up to even find out if the clients are noticing it or not. Cause you said some feel like it's an unsafe space, but I'm sure many are just as are not seeing that blind spot just as the coaches might not be seeing. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll start that one. Um, I think the first piece before you even engage in these types of conversations is to go to one of our workshops. No, I'm joking. Um, is to really actually start to understand what it means to, to have a socialized identity and what it means for you as a coach, right? So before you engage in this type of conversation with a client, it really starts with some self-exploration around, you know, what are my identities? And, um, jokes aside, Sukari and I have developed something that we call the group identity wheel that helps coaches really look at major aspects of identity and you know do some thinking about whether they are in the dominant or marginalized group how much they think about these things based on that what are they bringing to the coaching relationship so you know in that way i think that's that's step one when you talk about you know having these conversations in the coaching relationship uh there are many ways to do that you know i personally have started to 
bring that wheel into, you know, the beginning, uh, even before I start coaching people, I gather some information and I ask them to name some of the identities that are really important to them so that I have it as something that's figural. And we've now set the container to be able to have conversations about that. And, uh, you know, so that's a starting point. Uh, Sukari, what would you add? Well, again, like you, through the work I've started when I have a new coaching client, just asking them as part of the chemistry call, you know, to see if we've got a fit, you know, what aspects of, of how you see yourself. Uh, I, I might not always use the term identity, but what's important to you um, when you think about how you bring yourself into the space, uh, what it is you want to get out of the engagement. Uh, because really the more I know about the experience you're having, uh, I think the better able we will be to determine whether or not we're going to have a good coaching partnership. And then I'll share a little something about me and, and, and you know, what's important to me. So now that a lot of the calls are on Zoom, so people are able to, you know, see me and I'm able to see them. And, you know, I can glean some aspects of identity, certainly, you know, age and uh, sometimes gender identity, not always, uh, and sometimes racial or ethnic identity, not always. So, you know, I probe a little, uh, but to your question, Alex, really, even, you know, if you don't take in a lot of data, if there isn't a lot at the very beginning, um, as you are moving through the coaching uh, partnership, there will sometimes be cues that alert the coach that something might be going on here that could be tied to this, this client's, one of this client's uh, social group identities. I think that I, I take so much from this, but I, I see it in sort of different um, realms maybe. So for example, when I think about my own identity and remember white, hetero, cisgender, right, man of a certain age, um, what I recognize is that these days I'm identifying way more with my age. And then there was a time when I identified primarily with my being a parent. You know, I was father before I was everything else. And there have been times when I identified more as a man. I don't know. I don't know. But um, so I appreciate the nuance of the value it is for our clients to be asked how they're identifying or what they see, uh, how they see themselves, because I can recognize the flow or maybe change over time. I think that, um, oh, also, also socioeconomic, you know, as, as I've been able to climb that way, it really, <laughs> somebody, somebody not too long ago asked me if I played polo. Are you kidding? <laughs> I play stickball, man. Get in the street. Um, all of this to say that I think that we want to kind of separate them into domains, right? There's, as a coach or a coach trainer, you want to be aware, you want to spread awareness of for coaches about their implicit bias, I heard you, Amber, as well as maybe what they're not seeing about their client's experience, right? If I, I have a I have a colleague who identify I, I when I when I look at them, I assess, oh, this is a powerful, strong woman who is uh going to be huge in our industry 
and her experience is not white dominant, but a product of an immigrant family. You know, my I see that she's in what we might call a passing marriage, but her, she identifies as queer, right? So there's when people share their identity, we see more layers of the person and things that we might not have gotten from meeting them either on Zoom or when we can again in person. So I'm hearing the opportunity for us, for our clients and ourselves to identify. I'm hearing the opportunity for us to see or experience different layers of the lived experiences of our clients or people we're training. Um, are there others? I feel like I missed a couple. Well, I think some of it is the um, being able to see the experiences of others. I, I have that also be level one. Where we need to have coaches move is to be able to believe <laughs> what their clients are telling them about the experiences they're having. Because often, if the client is experiencing, say as a woman, and this is a you know, very familiar one, you know, in a meeting, I make a, a suggestion, it goes over everybody else's head, um, my male colleagues sitting next to me five minutes later makes the same suggestion and the boss hears it as you know, the best thing since sliced bread. Well, this is something that has likely been occurring uh, with this client in these meetings over and over and over and over, right? So when the client shares, comes to the coaching conversation and is frustrated that this has happened yet again, uh, a, a male client, sometimes even another female client who might not even recognize this pattern, the familiarity of, of this experience, could say, um, well, where are you sitting, you know, in the room? You know, maybe we can talk about, you know, other things that might be able to have you be heard, you know, by your boss in another way. Because the, the coach may not pick up on the a cue, what we call a social group identity cue, um, they may shift the conversation somewhere else. I had a client who did exactly this thing and she she was so frustrated and she kept saying to me you know I'm just so sick of going to these meetings and every time I contribute something you know it's like I've never said anything and and so I said to her I said well um is the is the boss female or male or you know what she's oh he's a man I said um and um is he white or black or Latinx? You know, she said, oh, no, he's a white man. I said, are there other uh, women in this meeting that you go to, this regular staff meeting? She says, no, I'm the only one. And she identified herself as a, as a black woman. I said, has it occurred to you <laughs> that perhaps some of what may be going on could be related to your gender uh, as the only woman in the group, or, you know, I don't know if you're the only black person in the group as well. She says, oh no, I'm the only black person. I'm, I'm the only woman. I'm, you know, it's a, it's a group of engineers, she says. <laughs> so, but she never mentioned this before. She, she, she told me the story kind of off and on, you know, about this stress and this push and pull with her boss. She never once hit on these differences. 
And as Amber, and I'm going to let her in now to talk about this, as Amber will share, there's a lot of research, a lot of literature about what we call kind of predictable behaviors around these group identities, patterns that, that can be seen once you know to look for them. Yeah, thanks, Sakari. I'm, I'm, I get so excited when we have these conversations, you know, like, I know what, I'm supposed to be calm and have, you know, intellectual things to say, but I just get really passionate about it. So I'm just, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking of all the stories that I personally have and that so many of uh, my coaching clients have and, and colleagues and friends and family members. And, uh, but what you're bringing up is a really interesting point, uh, which is that uh, there are things that we're conscious of and things that we're not, Right. And when you're talking about social group identity theory, right, which is what um, Sukari was talking about in terms of the body of research, there are, of course, patterns of behavior that play out. There are also patterns of consciousness, what we're attending to, what we're not, right, based on uh, where we are on the, on the power lines. And there are, uh, there are some times where people in marginalized identities actually are in a state of relative, uh, what I would call, you know, denial psychologically, meaning that they have created a boundary around themselves to not have to take in some of the things that are happening that are deeply painful. So you might find someone who is on the, you know, has this cumulative impact of experience being uh, an only, you know, whether it be by race or gender or sexual orientation, etc., who is struggling, really internalizing it as if there's something wrong with them at the individual level, right? Uh, and if you as a coach aren't aware of social group identity theory, you might miss this whole field, right, uh, that, uh, you know, this particular experience is, uh, you know, the context within which it's happening. If you're able to ask some of the questions that Sukari just asked, uh, then you can raise their awareness to, oh, wait, this isn't just a me experience. This is something about the setting I'm in, the group identities I hold, the identities of those around me, right? And it helps your client really get a better sense of what their experience is and then also what choices they have about how they act, right? Because I believe a big part of what we're in the business to do as coaches is to expand the field of choices for our clients or with our clients, I should say. So, you know, all of that is in the mix. Before I forget, I just want to name one thing, Chris, that you also said, which was about liberals. Um, and, you know, there's an assumption often that liberals are somehow uh, less biased. Uh, so I just want to kind of talk a little bit. About <laughs> this is my Robin D'Angelo moment right here. <laughs> yeah, there you go, Robin. Um, uh, yes. So, so I think, you know, it's really important when we talk about research to, to just remember every one of us has implicit bias. Every one of us, if you have a brain, you have bias, right? We know that we're, we're managing, you know, 11 million data points at any given moment. We have the back of our brain processing a lot of that for us very quickly. So it does not matter if you're in middle America or, you know, in one of the, you know, capitals or, you know, in an urban area, uh, you will have some bias and sometimes our conscious values of saying, well, I'm liberal, you know, and I value inclusion can get in the way of us doing the work we really need to do to really pay attention to our biases, right? Uh, some of the hardest diversity, equity, and inclusion workshops I've ever done have been in a room of uh, white liberals. I'll just name that because <laughs> there's just so much resistance 
around the dissonance between wanting to, you know, front of the brain, wanting to be inclusive and the back of the brain stuff that's happening um, that really, you know, has to do with stereotypes and things we've been exposed to throughout, throughout our lives. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate that reminder. And uh, why I called it my Robin D'Angelo moment, of course, is she wrote White Fragility, which is by a, <laughs> you know, uh, ostensibly white liberal cisgendered woman to for us white liberals, right, saying hey, it's actually our work to be to do and that we are uh, largely a, a huge part of the problem. One of the things that I recently had that really touched me to my core is I had a conversation with um, a black friend of mine and we, I wanna say we cleaned up the inherent biases and racism in our relationship. And I think it was harder for them. In other words, I wanna, I wanna point to something and it may, may not be appropriate for our conversation, but I think it might be that you know, it's one thing for me to say, wow, I have been so stupid and easygoing about really deep, painful, important things all these years. It's another thing for somebody who's black to say, you know, something similar, right? I have, I have been complicit in a lot of the racism and, and inherent sort of biases that we've, that we've carried forward all these years. Can we speak to that for a moment? What's the what's the lived experience of being complicit in your own oppression or in a society that oppresses people on based on so many things? And is that something that we should be addressing as coaches or bringing to our clients? I think that's a really good question. The, the this whole notion of what we call either um, internalized oppression. Um, sometimes it's referred to as the colonized mind. It just kind of depends on um, the degree to which uh, the oppressed individual has internalized a lot of the messaging from the dominant culture. That's really what it's about. And the same way that we are finding our, our white colleagues kind of waking up, rubbing the sleep out of their eyes around a lot of this and saying, oh my God, you say this has been going on for 400 years? Really? What? How, how, how did I not know this? Um, the same thing is true, What we're, what, at least what I'm experiencing with a lot of people, black and brown people in the space right now, is they, they are just exhausted by the questions of, you know, well, what do we do? How do we move forward? And then they, they move into that space, right? So they, they try to help their uh, nice white colleagues figure out how to move on. And it is in that doing even that they are contributing to a pattern of supporting and doing the work for the dominant group. And so until, as Amber said, people get some learning, some real learning around what are the, the patterns of behavior on both sides of this coin. How do I, as a person of color, um, 
how am I conditioned to move in and, and to help the white people feel comfortable? I have to know that that is something I am doing in order to stop doing that. And, and it isn't until I get introduced to some of these behavioral characteristics of oppressed or marginalized or subordinated groups that I can start then to, to work my own list and to ask myself, oh, it sounds helpful, but really is it? <laughs> is it helpful or is it contributing? Uh, Amber. Oh, goodness, so many things to say. But, uh, you know, some of what you, the way you just frame that, Sukari, I think is brilliant because I, I do think that sometimes there's this, uh, the way I think about it is almost like a learned disability as, you know, you're talking about wiping the, the sleep from, from eyes when we're in the dominant group, um, that we, because we don't have to, you know, I'm saying we because we all have, you know, dominant and subordinated, you know, groups or marginalized groups. Um, for me, you know, I'll just even take uh, the example of sexual orientation being uh, heterosexual. Uh, you know, I don't, unless, unless I'm doing my work, I am not thinking about sexual orientation as an issue at all, you know. And, uh, you know, I think about, I remember when I was growing up, uh, it didn't even occur to me that I even had a sexual orientation. It was like, you know, LGBTQI, you know, plus folks had, you know, uh, gender identity and sexual orientation and all of those things, but I was just Amber, right? That's, that is complete learned, uh, you know, unconscious pieces around uh, not noticing these dynamics, right? So, um, so I'm appreciating what you're saying, Sukari, because on the other side, when I as a marginalized group have internalized a lot of this stuff around you know, um, being not just being less than, you know, all of the things that we take in from society, but also having to be the helpful one, having to do more work for everybody, you know, then I can be complicit in keeping the dominant group, uh, you know, from doing their own work, right? And from developing the ability that they need to, to be able to lean in and do this work, right? Uh, and I know I catch myself in that all the time. I mean, this is my profession, right? So people will come to me and ask me questions. But even in my personal life, people will ask me to educate them about, you know, what it's like to be a mixed race person or what it's like to be a person of color or, 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 and have me do the work for them rather than looking at, you know, these are white folks, looking at the ways in which they are complicit in creating, uh, you know, a white, uh, you know, environment where, you know, a white supremacy environment, you know, we know by now, I think in, in, as we talk about these, I'm not talking about just white nationalists. I'm talking about an environment where white is seen as better, white is seen as the norm, right? So if you are helped by, you know, the one black person or the one mixed race person, you know, who you went and found, who tells you all the answers, you know, then you, you get convinced that, oh, I know it now. I don't have to go out and do my own work, right? So it is a dance that we're in. And I think it is, back to your point, Chris, deeply painful as a marginalized group member and this experience with you, this um, person who was, uh, I believe you said a Black person, to see the ways that we have been complicit. I think it's important to remember that that is out of survival, okay? So this is, you know, this is a, a distinction between being complicit to hold on to your privilege in a dominant group and being complicit 
to survive in a system, right, that is constantly asking you to be something you're not. And, and not just asking, but expecting Absolutely. you to do that. I can tell you, I, when I first learned <laughs> about this theory and this behavior, I, I had it pointed out to me. I was, I was, I was in a um, diversity and inclusion certificate program. And so I had it pointed out to me, you know, this is what the behavior looks like, Sukari. This is what it looks like. And, and you know, because it was a six-month cohort-based program, the faculty were able to show me ways in which I was doing this behavior. And it just felt to me like, well, it was the most natural thing to do. I knew how to do it. I, I knew how to help. And, and so why wouldn't I? And, and as I started to understand more about the systemic roles that were being played out, then I was able to say to myself, you know what, this is a behavior I can change. So when we kind of started, we were joking around, Chris, about what do we need to unlearn? You know, what are the things that we think we know and that have served us well that we actually need to just let go of and say, you know, I need to be different in this way. And so I remember being in a conversation with my sister about this and I had this aha moment. I said, well, I'm just not doing that anymore. And she says, well, what do you mean when people ask you, you know, what should they do? What, what are you going to say? I'm going to say, you know, what have you read? What do you know about the topic that you can meet me halfway and we can be in a, a discussion of equals, you know, around it? But no, I'm, I'm not here to be your library of information so that you don't have to do anything. She says, well, but how will people learn? Well, they'll either figure it out and, and go and, you know, Wikipedia or whatever my grandson is saying to me all the time, search it up, Nona, search it up. You know, well, they can search it up and figure out, you know, what's what. And then I'm happy to, to meet people where they are. I'm happy for someone who says, you know, I've read that book by Robin D'Angelo. <laughs> <laughs> and and I've got a few insights. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to be in a conversation with me about what I've learned. I'm nice. happy to meet you there. I've got another idea for you. I, I recently approached a colleague uh, who's a person of color with a question that I had about the Latin experience. And uh, she was kind enough to answer my question. And then she said, that'll be $10. And I thought, that's fair. So I pulled out my phone and then out her. I'm like, okay, money-making opportunity. Sure, why not? Um, Alex, what do you got? Um, I was thinking about what you both do with your company, the programs, the resources. And I was wondering if we could weave this into a question. And, and I don't know if it's possible, but we're going to find out. So one of the things that I've noticed is, and, I, and I'm sure you've noticed this in some way, Everything we've become, a, especially here in America, everything, everything has somehow become a political issue, right? You eat beef, you must be on the right. You eat vegetables, you're on the left. You wear a mask, you're on this side. You don't wear a mask, you're on this side. Everything, it's insane, right? Thing like you like this kind of flower. Well, that means you're this. And this is pretty new. It didn't, it wasn't always like this. And I've noticed in this diversity inclusion conversation race conversation that's happening also this is not about human beings this is not about being better this is about you know liberals believe there's racism conservatives believe there's not i'm you know obviously i'm generalizing to to make this point 
I'm curious how we make a difference in, in that conversation. And really like, so you get to share, I want to hear about some of your programs and work and how that, if you see that as, as I'm seeing it, but how we can kind of break that down or um, grow or improve in this conversation and using the, the tools and resources that you both have created. Hmm. I was sitting there uh, as you were talking, Alex, thinking about, is this, is this new? Is this, you know, how I, I believe in some ways it's, it's old. I believe it's getting reinforced. I think it's, you know, part of our human tendencies. This is why I go back to the brain because I think it's important for us to understand what's happening for us in, uh, you know, physiologically as well as emotionally and societally. I think in terms of levels of system, like, you know, the individual level, the group level, the societal level, the organizational level. So to your question around, you know, what we do with these divides, if I look at, you know, at the individual level, I'm labeling things before I even know I'm doing it, right? That's the way my brain works. But then when we develop cultures, right, and, and uh, ways in which some groups have and some groups don't, then there's a way in which bias is hitting people either, you know, in a very visceral way in terms of what they have access to and don't. So those types of divides, I think we're living in and we've been building and growing and reinforcing for so long. My, my, the question that you're, you're raising, I think, is important because I think if we bring the tools of understanding that those things are happening and allowing people to engage in conversations across how they're making meaning across identities, then I think, you know, ironically, when we talk about our differences with skills, we actually come to a place where we can uh, arrive at our commonality, at our, at our universal connections. What I think is happening now, which is a problem, is that we name our differences, right? And we, we put people in other categories, self in other categories, and then we stay there and we don't actually come together to talk across those bridges to then get to a place of human connection. Or we want to ignore the differences and say, well, can't we just all get along, you know, and all just come to the universal, you know, closeness? No, we can't because we're ignoring all of the layers of system we've put in place and the, and the real experiences that people are having. So that's my more technical answer to the question. I also get a little bit concerned right now that uh, that people are doing what you're talking about, which is staying in their in their camps, right? And and not taking risks to lean in and have conversations with each other. Will it be hard? Absolutely. Is it uncomfortable? It has to be. There's no way you can have conversations around this that will not be messy and hard, right? Um, but. For people in the marginalized group, that's been our experience, right? Um, and when we're in the dominant group, it's the fear of going there because we haven't had that up till now, right? So there's got to be some give for people in dominant groups to lean in and, and make mistakes. I mean, take this back to coaching. That is probably my one takeaway for people is you have to let go of this image that you're perfect. We started with this at the beginning of the session. You have to be able to make mistakes and understand that you have to get uncomfortable to unravel all the things that we've created, right, in society. So anyway, I'm not even sure if I answered your question, Alex, but that's what came out. <laughs> Sounded like a good answer to me. I, I would also say that, you know, our work is nestled 
you know, in the coaching profession. And I have yet to meet a coach who has not authentically and legitimately wanted to be the best, you know, source of support they can be for their client, no matter what the differing worldviews may be. So I think we are looking at a, a time, certainly in the evolution of, of, of the United States, and we're, we're hearing from people in other parts of the world that similar things are happening. We are looking, you know, at, at societies starting to grapple with what people are, are claiming they don't, they, they didn't see before, but they see now. And they're, they're, they're saying, I, I don't want to turn my attention away from this. I don't want to, you know, turn, I don't want to go back to sleep. I want to see if there's a way we can build a bridge that connects us. Because once I can see your difference, I can understand your experience, then we're able to form a partnership that makes the two of us or all of us whole. So to this point, Alex, you, um, I know Chris shared his identities. How do you identify around race? It's, it's interesting because I've never thought about it, right? As, as part of, quote unquote, the dominant group, I've never thought about it. And somebody asked me about a week ago and I, re and I went, oh, that's part of my privilege that I don't wake up and think about it. And I think I have an interesting caveat to this. So if somebody asks me, you know, I, they look at me and they go, well, you don't look like just a typical white guy. Um, I say, well, my dad is Italian, but you got to go back a couple of generations to get back to his family. And my mom is actually Jewish. And so her family comes from Russia, Poland, uh, what would we be Israel now? But because my last name is Terranova, nobody would ever look at me and go, oh, that's for sure a Jewish guy. I think, you know, there's been at different points in my life when I played baseball in high school, I had a shaved head. A lot most people thought I was Hispanic at that time. Um, the area I grew up in in L.A. was predominantly like white, middle class Jewish kids. So I think I probably just got lumped into that, except for when the last name came up. Um, I never and I never identified as with the with Judaism as a religion so I kind of like pushed that away which made me even more non and now I look and go oh that's it's 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 a great realization because I go I've never actually had to address this I've never had to think about um I've never been caught in any anti-semitism I've never been I when I was a baseball player I was able to play I played a lot of baseball in predominantly black neighborhoods or hispanic neighborhoods where I was one of the only not where I was the minority and I was able to fit in and was accepted. Um, and now I have to say, well, I'm, I'm a straight or a cis gendered male, uh, white male. I mean, that's how I identify. Um, yeah, but it, you know, it, it, it took you about two minutes to get there. Yeah. Yeah. I have no, I mean, it's, this is the second time I've answered it. <laughs> so it took about two minutes to say I'm a cisgender white male. And so you see, this is what we're, we're, this is the work we're doing. It's to have it be easier for coaches 
who have identities that they've never had to interrogate before, they've never had to speak to before, um, to be able to, to step into that space and, and, and as uncomfortable, because you did seem to be just a tad uncomfortable as you were talking about it. Maybe I don't know what you're feeling. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's something new. So it feels weird to like right. put, especially right. for somebody like me who avoids wanting to be ever put in a box. And, 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 and so, but the society puts you in the box. Mm -hmm. And so what, I, what, what we share with coaches is that when you walk into the room and nobody knows you, nobody knows your history, where you grew up, your religious background, you know, you, you're three generations removed from Italy. Nobody knows anything about you. They don't even know your last name. They don't know your first name. You just walk in. All they know is what they think they know about people who look like you. And to Amber's point about what the brain does, and so we are automatically then thin slicing the information we have available to us and telling ourselves a story about who you are. And then we will treat you on the basis of the story we've told ourselves about who you are. And this is true for all of us. It's not just true for you and Chris and Amber and myself. It's true for everyone because this is happening all the time, all the time. And so when we are, are called upon as coaches now, which is the work, our work called the fifth domain, we are saying you are taught to coach in the emotional domain. You are taught uh, to coach in the cognitive domain. You are taught to coach in the domain, you know, of the body or somatic. And you are taught to coach, you know, in, in, in the spiritual domain, right? So what a what a client knows instinctively, you know, to be happening. But we're not really teaching coaches to be curious about this fifth domain of identity. And we, we are not separated from it. It is, it is in us. And we can tell ourselves, oh, well, you know, I never paid attention, you know, to these differences. But I'm, I'm going to ask you and Chris, to raise your hand if you'd like to be treated the way black people are treated in this country. Just raise your hand. For those who are just listening, there are no hands raised. Well, there you go. So you see, we, we know things. <laughs> we know things about what's happening in these systems and in our society. We, we, we don't bring them to the fore all the time, but we know there's something different. So if you know that difference, if you know enough about the difference to know that you don't want to be treated <laughs> the way you are seeing black and brown people being treated, then you have to also bring that knowledge into your coaching practice. Does this make sense? Perfectly. I'm, I'm reminded of the first time I was introduced to that question when Chris Rock, no less a, no less a, philosopher than Chris Rock said, there's not a, there's not a white person in here who would trade lives with me and I'm rich. <laughs> <laughs> and he was right. <laughs> That's right. He was right. Yeah. Thank you so much for making that point so beautifully and powerfully. Um, our time has flown by and I want to make sure that people know how to how to get a hold of you, how to reach out and find out about the work of fifth that you're doing in this area, which is through your website, fifth domain coaching. And it's all spelled out F I F T H domain coaching.com. You can also reach Amber through 
Amber Mays Consulting. That's at Amber Mays, A-M-B-E-R-M-A-Y-E-S dot com. And I love this name, uh, uh, Sakari, your work address, so to speak, is Shift Work. Uh, right and i love that shift work llc because you're not only shifting work but some of us have done shift work so we know uh shift work llc.com but again you can reach both uh, you can find both of them by going to fifth domain coaching.com um upcoming programs what should coaches do how could what should we where should we start what should we learn first what resources do you have or where do you want us to Well, I would say a couple things. If you go to the Fifth Domain Coaching website, you'll see we have a couple of publications on there, which are you know good places to start if you'd like to some reading resources. We are developing that site, so that's that's going to have more. Uh, but also, uh, you can sign up for our mailing list there. So when we do have events, which we are working on virtual events for coaches to deepen their competencies in this area, you will be notified. Uh, so stay tuned uh, for that. Sakari, what, what did I miss? No, I don't think you've really missed anything. As you might imagine, um, we've had an avalanche of interest in our work over the course of the last uh, three to four weeks. And, and what we're finding, you know, people are really, want, particularly coaches, they, they want to figure out how do we upskill how do we take what it is you've written about here and what you've talked about here and how do we get these skills into us so that we can start doing the work in a way that honors what we agree is a fifth domain of, of coaching, a, a way in which we can help build and support our clients. So um, we have developed a, a train the trainer uh, workshop. It's, it's done virtually uh, and you know, we want to help coaches kind of shift into this space because it, it helps our clients. You know, it's not mm -hmm. for us per se, but it, it, it helps our clients that need coaches to come to them being able to, to take in their fullness. It's beautiful. I want to uh, thank you especially given that avalanche, right? Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today and, uh, and to be here for a few thousand coaches. We appreciate it very much. I wanna give you the last word, uh, each of you, both of you together separately uh, today. If you had a parting thought or a parting shot or a final point, what would you leave a few thousand coaches with today? Well, I would just say back to, I loved Alex when you said, I don't like to be put in a box. And I don't fundamentally believe most people like to be put in boxes. Uh, so what I would say as uh, coaches listening to this, uh, really think about what Sukari said originally, which is most of us have that mission, that purpose of helping our clients better their lives. And if there is a way in which you are missing the mark on that, or you can upskill to help people not have to live their lives in boxes, to actually name what's going on and help them understand how they've been put in boxes and what they can do to live their best lives given that, right? Rather than ignoring them or acting like the boxes aren't there, then wouldn't you want to do that, right? I mean, I, I hope that folks are leaving thinking about the fact that 
there's just so much more they can be doing to help their clients, right? And it starts with the work that you do with yourself. So the last piece I'll say is really, really work your ego stuff around wanting to get this right and be perfect and lean in, get uncomfortable the way in which I appreciate both Chris and Alex have in, in, in the conversation and, and various ways so that you're able to develop in, in service of clients. Yeah, thank you for that, Amber. I think uh, the only thing I would add is that this is not, there is no top to the mountain, right? So as we are climbing and taking part in our learning journey, we just have to get comfortable with enjoying the climb. Uh, you know, we'll reach plateaus that will require us to rest, to pause, to reflect, you know, to, to get clear, clearer, but then we, we have to, to continue the climb. It is not the destination, it is the journey that will bring us the awareness and the enhanced ability to serve well. And that's why I believe your listeners are in this professional, for this profession. We wanna serve well, we don't, we don't just wanna show up and check a box, we wanna be of service. So beautiful. Thank you both for the important work that you're doing. Thank you so much for your time here today. Alex, any last word for you? Any last Thanks thought? for making me answer that question for the second time and letting me be with the uncomfortableness. And just reflecting it back, I mean, I, through coaching, I think coaches want to want to grow, right? We want to be uncomfortable. We, we know that we can't grow through being comfortable. So whether it's a conversation like this or other challenging ones, I, I just want to Thanks for, for, for showing up and being the people that would hold us as the host to those same things. Well, you kind of opened yourself up for it early. <laughs> Instead, you know, you had these other colleagues who are really pushing each other to kind of get into this uncomfortable space. So uh, <laughs> you might be able to have a trick up your sleeve the next time you get together with them. <laughs> That's great. Pass it on. <laughs> Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to complete this show now, and I want to thank you, dear listener, uh, for being with us again. I'll uh, in a moment I'll wrap this show up, and then if if you'd like to stay, you're welcome. But Alex and I typically do a little bit of a bonus piece for about I don't know ten minutes afterwards, and we'd love to have you. But it, we understand your schedules are jam packed these days too, so that'd be fine either way. But meanwhile, I want to bid you a fond farewell, our dear listeners. Thank you so much for being with us again this week and every week as we bring you people out on the cutting edge of coaching, people you need to know about, or people just plain interesting. Uh, this is another edition of The Coaching Show behind us. I thank you for listening. We're here each week on Accomplishment Media or wherever fine podcasts are available. And I thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to The Coaching Show. We will talk to you next week.